One of the oldest myths about psychedelics is that playing with them is like a game of Russian roulette. For every few fun trips, there's a bad one loaded in the chamber and waiting to flip you into a kind of madness. The truth is far less ghoulish, although there's still a lot of mystique surrounding these substances in popular culture. Because psychedelics have been forced underground for nearly five decades, there's too little research to get a true reading of just how often people have bad trips on psychedelics. But researchers from a few medical labs that are licensed to work with these substances for therapeutic reasons think there's a more nuanced story to tell. These aren't so much bad trips, they say, as much as they're difficult ones. And even the difficult ones often turn out to be meaningful, constructive experiences. Their thinking, together with the experience of those in the underground psychedelic community, is giving us a more complete picture of how often things might go wrong with psychedelics use, why they go wrong, and how to manage them if they do. Welcome to The Psychonauts, a podcast that trips into the realm of psychedelic psychiatry as hallucinogenic mushrooms go on trial in South Africa. If you haven't listened to earlier episodes, you can do so via the website psychonauts.co.za or catch up through iTunes. The names and details of some of the people who appear in the series have been changed just to protect their privacy. My name is Leonie Chabert and this is episode 6 Bad Trips and Bogeymen. Part 1. The Cub He called himself Bear, although we never did find out why. He was a big fellow. His frame filled the camping chair, but his dark stubble belied the fact that he was still little more than a man-cub. This is Bear, said my friend Sarah, introducing him with a bemused smile when I wandered into our camp late one afternoon this September. We were at one of those 48-hour trance parties, a few hours outside of Cape Town, and the stragglers from our crew were lounging about under a stretch tent, gathering themselves after a weekend of heavy dancing. It was hot. The air was clawing. A few thousand pairs of bare feet were still drumming up a dust cloud on the nearby dance floor. The ceaseless electronic beats were thumping their way towards the closing session. Bear was having some difficulties. He had come barreling into our campsite a few hours earlier, panicked and disoriented and searching for his friend Cage. His friend, he said, had dropped down next to him that morning and died right there on the spot, apparently of a heart attack. At least that's what Bear's scrabbled brain was telling him. He was convinced that our tent was the medic's facility and that he'd find Cage here. Young Bear had plonked himself down in a camping chair, where he'd stayed for hours, and was now staring dolefully into the middle distance through basset hound eyes. Every now and then he'd swing his head as if he were moving through an atmosphere thicker than sludge and fix his gaze vaguely on our friend Jimmy, who was sitting nearby. What happened with Cage? he kept asking. Do you know what happened with Cage? Jimmy's eyes twinkled with amusement. I don't know, Bear, 
same as I said last time, I don't know what happened with Gage. Bear swung his gaze forward, fixed his eyes back on that invisible middle point in the middle distance, and muttered, What the fuck was that? What the fuck was that? That was Bear, looping through this pattern like a slow-timed metronome, as he tried to chart a course through the fog of whatever was going on inside his disoriented mind. Bear, it turns out, had dropped a rather substantial dose of acid earlier that day, and then topped it off with a joint. Whatever scenes were playing out inside his mind, he didn't know what was real anymore, and what wasn't. He must have sat there for a good three hours, floating near Jimmy, while he tried to chart a course back to reality. All Jimmy could do was be a small beacon blinking from the mainland, helping the man-cub get his bearings in the thick mental fog. This is what happens when things go wrong on a psychedelic trip. For a few short hours, Bear had lost time, lost reality, and, seemingly, lost a bit of his mind. I guess it's this kind of thing, this so-called bad trip, that stoked some of the panic around psychedelics. Bear had brought on a temporary, psychosis-like state, which had flipped him into panic and fear. The good news is that when these bad trips happen, they're usually short-lived, even though they may feel as though they're lasting an eternity. And they often have long-term positive benefits. As the scientific and the underground community of psychedelics users are starting to compare notes to try and understand how often a trip goes bad, or why, they're confirming that the reality seems to be more promising than the myths when it comes to psychedelics and psychosis. When it comes to the harms and risks associated with drugs, and by that I mean legal drugs like alcohol and nicotine, and illicit drugs like psychedelics or methamphetamines, for instance, those potential harms are grouped into three categories, dependency, toxicity, and behavior. There's no evidence at all that psychedelics are addictive. In fact, given what we know about sugar and how it works on the pleasure center of the brain, it's probably safe to say that sugar is way more addictive than any of the hallucinogens. And once you've had an intense trip, you'll understand why these aren't binge drugs the way cocaine or alcohol are. Mark Hayden, an adjunct professor at the University of British Columbia in the School of Public and Population Health, says during a TEDx talk that in nearly three decades of working in addiction services in Canada, he never once had someone come into his office complaining of an addiction to a psychedelic. The addiction research that's out there seems to support this anecdote. As for toxicity, well, that refers to how much a substance can poison your body, causing either cell or organ damage. If you have a few glasses too many of your favourite whiskey, you might end up hugging the toilet as your poisoned body tries to purge itself. If you inject a bit too much heroin, your breathing may shut down and you could suffocate. That's what toxicity means in drug terms. It's almost impossible to ingest a large enough volume of any hallucinogen to actually poison yourself. With psychedelics, the risk is in the behavior. What happens during a trip and whether you freak out or not and hurt yourself or someone else. If a chap as large as Bear starts to throw his weight around because he's delusional or confused, he could do someone a nasty damage. That's why when it comes to responsible psychedelics use, 
It all boils down to having the right frame of mind, a safe, calm space, and a few responsible people holding the container for you. It's what the psychonauts refer to as the set and setting. Getting this right is the single easiest way to avoid a so-called bad trip. And from the stories I've picked up along the way, these simple environmental tweaks can flip a psychedelic trip from good to bad to good again in a matter of minutes. According to Dr. Derek May from the Johns Hopkins medical team that's using psychedelics alongside conventional therapy methods, a bad trip is basically a panic reaction that someone might have during a psychedelic experience where they might not know what's real anymore and what's not. And as a result, they might spin out into fear and paranoid delusions. Fortunately, it's usually a temporary state, and it can be contained. In fact, most psychedelics researchers now argue that it's not accurate to call these experiences bad trips. Because even with the really shitty trips, people mostly come away from them saying that they're nevertheless pretty significant and meaningful experiences. That they learned something about themselves or the world. That they came away with some greater insight or wisdom. Even with Bear, who was clearly freaked out by what was happening inside his scrambled brain, he kept muttering to himself afterwards that it all made sense. Something now suddenly made sense. This is the weird thing about psychedelics. They can slip you into a temporary state that is, well, essentially a kind of psychosis, where for a short time you might not be able to figure out what's real and what's not. It's a temporary losing touch with reality. It passes once the substance leaves the body, and it isn't always upsetting or crazy-making. But it can occasionally spin a person into anxiety and fear. And that's where the risk of harm comes in. One scientific article by the psychedelic research team at Imperial College London documents the outcome of a study where they gave people LSD and tracked the appearance of psychosis in the participants. Some of the participants did experience classic signs of psychosis during the session, and yet they largely reported a greater sense of optimism and openness two weeks later. And they were all fully in touch with reality once the dosing session had passed. Have a look on the Psychonauts website for a link to the journal article. Another study from the United States wanted to test this, let's call it a myth, this myth that psychedelics use is linked with long-term mental health problems and psychosis. Researchers did a survey amongst 130,000 adults, where nearly 20,000 of them admitted to being psychedelics users. They asked questions about people's lives, their substance use, and the state of their mental health. The researchers also adjusted for other factors that might result in poor mental health outcomes. Things like depression that might have shown up in the person's childhood, or other substance use or certain social or environmental factors that might lead to mental health problems. And the researchers didn't find any link between psychedelics use and what they called psychological distress, mental health treatment, suicidal thoughts, suicide attempts, or depression and anxiety. In fact, these findings confirm what many researchers in the field now maintain, that psychedelics are more likely than not to protect against mental health problems rather than cause them. It's now being called the psychedelic paradox. Many psychedelics bring on this temporary altered state, something that can look like psychosis during a dosing session, 
but this often results in positive mood and behaviour changes that linger for weeks after the session. This tendency of LSD to bring on a temporary psychosis in some cases, this is what got the medical community fascinated with its potential to explore the human brain and consciousness in the first place. Before the substance was banned in 1971, in response to the growing counterculture that was using psychedelics recreationally. Attempts to justify the prohibition of LSD have fueled what seems to be this myth that if you play with psychedelics, it's like a game of Russian roulette, where there's a one in a handful chance that a trip is going to turn you permanently bonkers. Hopefully the emerging evidence will dislodge this myth a bit and calm the moral panic that's still one of the main hurdles in allowing legislators to loosen up the laws that could make these substances available to be used alongside conventional mental health therapies. So how often do psychedelic trips go south? Well, it's really hard to say. Because of the prohibition, it's driven psychedelics use underground. So it's difficult to say just how widely the substances are actually used or map the extent to which the difficult trips happen. In the clinical setting, where medical researchers are using psychedelic dosing sessions alongside conventional therapy methods to treat conditions like depression and alcoholism, for instance, they have some preliminary findings. The Johns Hopkins Psychedelics Medical Team have found that in the clinical trials, which I've spoken about earlier in the series, about a third of the people who do the big dosing sessions on psilocybin mushrooms have what might be regarded as a challenging trip, meaning they feel some anxiety or fear. But they mostly also say that the experiences are nevertheless meaningful and the longer-term outcomes mostly positive. Many say that they feel well-equipped through the process to handle whatever challenges they face in the moment. How often these difficult trips happen in the underground community, where people are using psychedelics either recreationally or therapeutically, well, that's much harder to measure, because of the secrecy. A recent voluntary online survey done by the Johns Hopkins team tried to trawl the underground psychedelics community to get a sense of how often things go wrong on a psychedelic trip and why. The survey asked psychedelics users, specifically those who'd had really tough trips, to tell them what had happened. They published some of the results specifically relating to difficult trips on hallucinogenic mushrooms, in the Journal of Psychopharmacology in 2016. Here's what the survey turned up. The overall trend was that most of the so-called bad trips happened to people who were young, who took really high doses of whatever psychedelics they'd used, who had taken it in the wrong social setting, and who didn't have anyone sitting with them to help them feel safe and comfortable and cared for. The researchers also found that combining cannabis with a psychedelic is not a good idea. A lot of the trips had unraveled after people had smoked a bit of pot to take the edge off, which is a common practice with psychedelics use. This pretty much describes poor Bear. The man-cub from the trance party took his LSD in a noisy, messy crowd. He got separated from his friend Cage as he was struggling to make sense of reality. He couldn't find his way back to his own tribe, and he mixed the acid up with a whole lot of cannabis. Part 2. The Shadow The first time I meet Louise Lessig, 
It's at a coffee shop in a small shopping centre in downtown Cape Town, where she runs a boutique. She's businesslike and efficient, checking her phone from time to time because she's got a shipment of clothes arriving at the harbour and she needs to arrange customs clearance. You wouldn't necessarily know from looking at her why I'm here to meet with her. Louise is in her early 50s. She's stylish and soft-spoken, with a polished London accent and feathered blonde-grey hair framing her face. She's quick to smile, and within minutes, I get why it is she's so good at what she does. There's something gentle about her. She's maternal in an almost archetypal way. I'm meeting with Louise because I want her to tell me what it's like to be a sitter, someone who watches over people during the ceremonial mushroom journeys, like the ones done by Monica Cromhout, who we talked about in episode two. Louise has been on her own journey with mushrooms for many years now. She's been a sitter for about four of those. She even hosts the occasional journey herself if close friends want an intimate ceremony. If you've listened to earlier episodes, you'll remember the drill. People gather together in someone's home, preferably in the evening, and prepare for an overnight journey. They'll generally take about five grams of dried psilocybin mushrooms, a so-called hero's dose, and rest back on mattresses or comfortable cushions for the duration. I've started calling it the entheosphere, that heavenly place you go to when your body dissolves and all that's left is consciousness and thought inhabiting a vaulted space where towering fractal patterns of technicolor dance and swirl and gyrate to the music. When people set off on these journeys, no one knows what they'll encounter when they get there, and sometimes it can be pretty intense, which is why the sitters are on standby. These sitters also take a small dose of mushrooms, usually about a gram or so, and will stay upright, watching, watching, watching. The idea is to support if anyone needs practical help, a tissue or a blanket or help getting to the loo. But more importantly, they're there in case things get... Well, a bit heavy. Some people stay still and inwardly focused during the ceremonial journeys, but in the years that Louise has been helping as a sitter, she's seen some people sob uncontrollably. Others pace anxiously. Some might need help to walk around outside in the garden. If things do get a bit intense, she tells me, the idea is that you're just there to sit with people. Your role isn't to guide them through the experience, whatever inward thing they're struggling with, and you shouldn't smother them, either physically or with conversation or emotion. Sometimes, all she'll do is remind someone to breathe through the discomfort, encouraging them to yield to the experience, rather than resist it. She doesn't talk, she doesn't really touch. At best, she says, she might squeeze someone's foot gently, just to remind them that she's there and that they're safe. That's usually all people need. Like Jimmy was to bear... You're there as a beacon in the night, blinking from time to time, so that the person can get their bearings while they navigate the strange otherworldly place. On the rare occasion, someone might try to flee, or if a bigger man gets freaked out, there is a chance he might hurt someone if he gets physically agitated. And in that case, your job is to make sure no one gets harmed. But so far there haven't been any medical emergencies in the underground ceremonies that Louise has been involved with. In fact, Dr. Derek May from the Johns Hopkins team confirms the anecdotes from the underground community. 
The data his team have looked at from the United States show that the number of recorded medical emergency emissions relating to LSD and magic mushrooms is extremely low. In a way, when things get difficult on these journeys, it's usually just someone confronting their monsters. That's all it is, Louise says. She talks me quietly through her own life. A difficult relationship with her father. Years of childhood neglect. A teenage rebellion that quickly morphed into a heroin dependency that shadowed her into her early 20s. Years of hard internal work as she slowly faced her shadow. While she tells me this, she rubs a faint patch of itchy pink skin on her hand while we sip our coffee. This is part of her own darkness, she says. Actually, no, she doesn't want to call it her darkness, or her demons. She'd rather call it her opposition. It seems less mm, confrontational. This is how her shadow is presenting itself, through this flare-up on her skin, and in her relationship with food, which she admits is a bit topsy-turvy at the moment. Mushrooms allow her to work with the shadow stuff, she says. She's also done many high-dose mushroom journeys herself, which is kind of a prerequisite for being a sitter. You have to have walked the path in order to be with others as they do the same. Listening to Miranda talk reminds me of the story of the great wizard Ged. Ged was around long before Harry Potter. He was born in 1968 in the book The Wizard of Earthsea by Ursula Le Guin. It's a story about going to dark places and needing to be broken by life in order to find your true self. It's the story of a gifted young wizard, anointed from birth to become a great magi. Ged's gift is seen in him as a young boy, and he's plucked from his humble origins to fulfil this destiny. Fated as he is during his training, he becomes puffed up and arrogant. Soon his fragile ego lands him in a duel with a rival trainee wizard. In their adolescent battle, they rain terrible spells down on one another. Ged wins, but the battle nearly kills him. He spends weeks in recovery. When he finally emerges from his sickbed, he's broken and weak and scarred. But what he also discovers upon recovery is that this battle has unleashed a terrible evil into the world. This evil, he soon learns, is intent on destroying him. Ged graduates, but the novice is weak and despairing and hounded by this darkness. He spends much of the book in flight, trying to outsmart and outrun this malevolent force. Eventually, though, he realises that there is no escape, that he will live out his days cowed and feared and living in dread of his inevitable death at the hands of this thing. He realises he must turn and confront the evil, even if doing so kills him. And so, one day, Ged senses that the darkness is nearby. He turns to confront it, and now it's the turn of the darkness to flee. What follows is a feverish pursuit, Ged giving chase until they have a mighty confrontation out at sea. It's a scene that's steeped in meaning. Ged and the dark force stride towards one another across the surface of a turbulent ocean. They lunge into one another, into a deathly wrestle. As they do so, Ged realises the darkness he's wrestling is himself. 
They struggle, writhe, fight, until eventually they merge into one. In confronting his own darkness, Ged and his shadow become integrated. They become a single entity. And in doing so, he becomes the powerful magi that the prophecies said he'd be. Stan Groff, the grandfather of LSD-assisted therapy, maintained that psychedelics were to psychiatry what the telescope is to astronomy or the microscope to microbiology. Like a prosthetic of the mind, they allow us to see into the parts of ourselves that we might otherwise struggle to find. We go there in our dreams from time to time, but the material we come back with from the dream state is so flimsy and ethereal. Like mist, it burns off with the dawn sun. With psychedelics, it's like we come back from the other side with documentary film footage. And some of that might include an encounter with our shadow self. Those darker, often unacknowledged parts of ourselves that we might want to deny or disown, but which are as much the fuller part of ourselves as anything. We all have our shadow, Louise says. We all need to have our shadow. If we allow ourselves to see both sides of us, well, that's a gift. Mushrooms help us do that, she says. But the encounter may not be an easy one. And if someone does encounter their shadow like that, and decides to step forward and wrestle with it, that's when it's useful to have a sitter like Louise nearby. A lighthouse blinking far out there in the distance, telling us which is port side and which is starboard, just until we can find our way back home. Part 3. Thunderbolt and Lightning Imagine you're staring at a vertical wall of mercury, only it's the colour of yellow gold. There's some music playing nearby, some deep house maybe. It's loud and electronic, but even if it's not your thing, it's still got so many layers of harmony that it sounds almost five-dimensional. Every time a note touches your ear, you see a metallic drop hit that mercury surface. Where the liquids collide, ripples blossom and curl outwards into shoots of metallic vines, twirling into tendrils, bursting into filigreed gold leaves and blooms. It's as if a magician is taking the music, spinning the thread into a gleaming metal, and conjuring a gilded flower motif crown from its weave. You sit in awe, mesmerized for what feels like hours, wondering to yourself how something this beautiful could even be possible. Sam is describing the kind of synesthesia that's so typical on a good dose of psilocybin mushrooms, the bizarre, otherworldly thing that happens inside your brain when the sound from your immediate environment weaves itself into the hallucinatory visuals playing out behind your closed eyelids to become an inseparable sensory experience. And if it goes well, this propels you directly into heaven. If it doesn't, well, I guess that's what this episode's about. What Sam describes next shows just how easily things can go wrong if the environment changes during a psychedelic experience. 
but it also shows how quickly they can be pulled back on course again, if an experienced hand is on the tiller. This again explains what the experienced psychonauts have been saying for years. It's about creating the right container in which you take the substance, and why it's useful to make sure these experiences are properly supervised. Back to Sam and his recent trip. It was getting towards the end of a good night of dancing at an all-night party venue near Swellendam. Sam and his friends had been hanging out on the edge of one of the dance floors for a few hours, immersed in the music. But it was getting cold and they'd been at it for hours, so they decided it was time to head back to their tents. The distance from the dance floor to their camp wasn't more than about 200 metres. But they'd set up their campsite right where the sound from the two music stages converged. They were just far enough from both stages so that they couldn't hear any distinctive tune from either DJ. But they were close enough that the bass line from both of the massive sound rigs thundered towards their tents on a collision course. Ordinarily, Sam would just have wedged some earplugs into his ears and gone to sleep, but there was still a whole lot of psilocybin in his system. Every sound that smashed against his eardrums was amplified and transformed into something visual inside his head. He lay for a few minutes, trying at first to ignore the noise, but it was like two 18-wheeler trucks were thundering down the highway and colliding right inside his head. It was just a mess of screeching tyres and tearing metal and smashing glass. The synesthesia turned the cacophony into an explosion of blinding light behind his closed eyelids. He pulled a pillow over his head, trying to dampen the assault, but it wasn't enough to muffle the effects. The pounding went on and on for what felt like hours. It was like someone was punching his brain, literally punching, punching, punching. He thought it was going to drive him mad. What to do? What to do? He needed to escape this horrendous bloody sound. Maybe he should get in his car and drive as far away from the camp as he could, just park on the side of the road and sleep in the back. Keys, keys, but where are the fucking keys? He couldn't find the keys. Okay, 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 he thought to himself. Don't panic, this isn't going to last forever. What else, what else, what else could he do? He just needed to escape this fucking noise. First, his sleeping bag propelled itself out the mouth of the tent. Then, a pillow followed by Sam, scrabbling on his hands and knees. He grabbed the bedding and hauled himself back to the edge of the dance floor where he'd been an hour earlier. He threw it all into a bundle, curled up into it, and pulled the sleeping bag over his head. The music was still blisteringly loud, but at least it was harmonious. It was just one tune, and the layers of music were in step with the beat. It was like flicking off a light switch. The screeching of metal inside his head was gone. The searing white light that had pounded his brain like a fist vaporised. In its place, a harmony wove itself into dancing colours once more. The panic pulled back like a retreating tide, and he sank back into the warm waters of the soothing sound. Within minutes, he was drifting towards the edge of sleep. What Sam describes here is what happens when things go wrong on a recreational dose of psilocybin mushrooms. Fortunately, he was experienced enough and sober enough to be able to troubleshoot his way out of it. 
But when the doses get much higher than this, it can be a lot harder to take charge of your physical environment enough to be able to salvage a trip if it slips into chaos. This is why it's so important to do these kinds of things in the right environment. And if you're moving into higher doses, there has to be at least one sober, trusted person on standby. Even though psychedelics use has largely been an underground phenomenon for the past half century, there's still a good body of reliable knowledge about how to use them safely. And this comes from the underground community itself, and is confirmed by the research being done by the various medical teams that have been licensed to re-look at the therapeutic potential of hallucinogens for treating certain mood disorders and addictions. There's a set of guidelines that have become known as the Principles of Psychedelic Harm Reduction. You can read more about those in the Psychedelic Harm Reduction Training Manual, which is published online by the Zendo Project, a volunteer organisation that supports the psychedelic scene. I've put a link to the manual on the Psychonauts website. The following is a bit of a mashup of those four principles, fleshed out with recommendations from some of the underground journey guides and the experienced psychonauts that I've spoken with over the past few months. This is how to create a safe space for people wanting to use psychedelics, or how to help someone who's having a hard time during a psychedelic experience. Number one, create a safe space. This is particularly important when people are taking bigger therapeutic doses. It's all about the set and setting, meaning your state of mind going into the session, the physical space you do it in, and whether you have someone supervising you. In terms of mindset, if you're in an emotionally fragile state, say if you're struggling with a temporary bout of deep depression, or if you've had a really bad fight with your partner, or your miserable neighbour has resurfaced, this is all stuff that's going to go into the trip with you, and might influence what happens while you're there. As for the physical space, it needs to be comfortable, safe, and preferably with the right kind of music because of that profound synesthesia effect that happens on these substances. Getting the environment right needs careful preparation beforehand. You need to be able to lie down once the medicine kicks in. You want to close your eyes and go inward. With psilocybin, it's much better done at night. For reasons that are hard to explain, it just that's just how it is. There should be a sitter present, someone who's experienced, trusted, and mostly sober, although the ceremonial sitters often take a small dose of psilocybin. They can help with practical matters like getting you to the loo if you're struggling to make head or tail of your physical space. But they can also keep the music on track and attend to anyone who might seem distressed. You don't want to be dealing with a barking hysterical dog or a telephone ringing or a jammed music system if you're dosed up to your eyeballs on psilocybin. One of the best ways to deal with a difficult trip is to be prepared for it. If someone knows that they might experience fear or anxiety, but know that they'll be taken care of, that it'll only last a short while, and have some basic tools for dealing with it, that seems to be one of the best ways of averting a difficult trip happening in the first place. Point two. Sitting, not guiding. From the perspective of the sitter, if someone does start to get anxious or fearful, the experts say it's important to be a calm, trustworthy, meditative presence for them. Don't try to fix the muddle that's going on inside the person's head. Allow them to muddle through it themselves, the way a therapist might do in a counselling session. The experts are also clear about certain ethical parameters. 
For instance, always ask permission before touching someone in any way during these sessions. And if they share any personal information, you must keep it in confidence. Point three, talk through, not down. The Johns Hopkins research shows that the important issue for someone during a difficult trip isn't how intense the peak experience is, but how long the whole thing goes on for. Often, the sooner a person stops resisting the experience and relaxes into it, the sooner it will pass. Encourage the person to connect with what they're feeling, to face what comes up and to breathe into it. Finally, point four. Difficult is not the same as bad. By far the vast majority of people who report having had difficult trips say that these are nevertheless really valuable, allowing them to learn and grow somehow. In fact, according to Dr. Derek May's team, in many cases, the more difficult the trip, the greater the positive mood and behaviour changes are after the event. There are very, very few reported cases where people experience negative outcomes that last after the difficult trip. By that I mean lingering depression or anxiety or suicidal thoughts or hopelessness that might be around for days or weeks after the dosing session. On the rare occasion that this happens, it's important to have follow-up medical care for the person. And, obviously, if during a session someone looks like their level of agitation will cause them to harm people around them or themselves, then you should consider calling medical support. Part 4. I'm going to end off with one last story. Let's call this one Dragon Bones and Angel Wings. Renee tells me about her first experience with acid, which sounds about as perfect an introduction as they come. She was with a group of friends, lounging on someone's lawn, with the wrinkled brow of Table Mountain across the city from them, like a giant bioscope. The sun was just dipping into the sea, lighting up the wisps of ivory and pink clouds that writhed above them. The psychedelic turned these into dragon skeletons that cantered in slow motion across the darkening sky. Shine on you crazy diamond rumbled from the sound system. And then, out of nowhere, the rush of air through feathers. The neighbours' homing pigeons were coming into land, circling round and around and around, just above Renée's head. The wings seemed to make the air visible. It was like angels coming home to roost. A few months later, Renée was having a crack time of it. Work was stressful, she was feeling isolated and lonely and drained. She wanted some of that expansiveness, some of that connection and peace. She just, for a few hours, wanted to escape the gloom of her office and the drudgery of day-to-day -day life. So she decided, on a whim, to do a little acid trip. Right there, on her own, in her lounge at home. She set it all up nicely. She switched on a curtain of dainty fairy lights, lined up every Pink Floyd album she could find, switched the music player's graphics into full psychedelic mode on her computer, phoned a friend to tell him what she was up to, and popped a blotter onto her tongue. And then things went a little awry. She quickly realised how alone she really was, truly alone. The cavernous gloom of her flat started to collapse in around her, pulling the walls closer and closer with each passing minute. 
Then, out of nowhere, someone in the flat above her started, well, her brain told her it sounded like a mallet slamming into masonry. Someone was doing late afternoon DIY. Ban, ban, ban against the brickwork. Every molecule of the building seemed to be splintering around her. And then the rush hour train started rumbling by, roaring through her senses like the Furies. She was imprisoned in a lounge. She couldn't possibly risk stepping out into the real world, even on such a mild trip. Oh God, she looked at the time. It was only, what, dusk? She was trapped inside, inside this chaos for, what, another five hours? Okay, think, think. She needed to call in her buddy system. A few minutes on the phone with her friend Richard. That helped a bit. Then Amanda came around and sat with her for half an hour. Then another chunk of time on the phone, this time with Leanne. But eventually they all had their own dinners to go and make. They had their own families to be with. By midnight, completely sober and straight-headed, Renee ended up pounding the streets of her suburb, trying to pry loose the fist that still gripped her sternum. How much longer? Eventually it did pass, but Renee hasn't touched LSD since. She admits now that she made a rookie mistake. You just don't do psychedelics on your own, especially if you're inexperienced. The take-home message from this episode is this. Before you launch into the world of psychedelics, you need to do your research. You need to know what you're getting yourself in for. Make sure you know the substances you're using are clean and good. Learn from experienced people. Don't do it alone. And don't combine psychedelics with other substances. Renee stayed away from psilocybin mushrooms for a long time because of that horrible experience on acid. When she eventually did try mushrooms, it was in such small amounts that they were barely perceptible. Until one day, at an intimate little music festival in the mountains near the Cape South Coast, late one night she took a little bit more than she'd planned to. As soon as she felt the intense trip taking off, she felt the vice grip of panic coming back, the way it did with the acid. Oh no, she thought, not another night of hell. She managed to find a quiet, elevated spot near the dance floor, with plenty of people milling about and music playing. She curled her legs into a quiet, meditative seat in the dark and tried to breathe through the rising panic. Within minutes, it felt as though that heavy molten rock in her chest began to dissolve, almost as though air was moving through it and turning it to pummy stone. It became light, porous, rounded off as the hard edges of the anxiety seemed to rub away. It didn't hurt anymore. That's when she knew she could trust mushrooms. On the LSD trip, it was as if the acid had taken her anxiety and sharpened it like a blade on a whetstone. But with mushrooms, it felt as though the substance was working with her to help dissolve the anxiety. This isn't everyone's experience. It's what works for Renee. Of the two most commonly used psychedelics in the recreational scene, some people prefer psilocybin mushrooms, some prefer LSD. Either way, it helps when you're using them to know how you respond to each one, to make sure you get the set and setting right, and to have people around you to support you if things go awry. At this point, I should probably throw in the disclaimer again. I'm not telling you these stories as a way of encouraging anyone to use psychedelics or break the law. 
because psychedelics are still illegal substances here. But the truth is, people are using them. Many have been using them since before they were banned in the 70s. And the genie is definitely out of the bottle in terms of people understanding the very real therapeutic potential of these substances. They're going to try them regardless of whether the state says it's okay or not. The risk and harm comes when people can't get clear information or access experience support. We can learn from the mistakes of people like Bear and Sam and Renee. We can also draw on the harm reduction guidelines that both the experienced psychonauts and the licensed medical teams are using. Whether it's for recreational or therapeutic purposes, psychedelics can be used safely. If they're taken responsibly, just like any substance, using psychedelics isn't like playing a game of Russian roulette with your mental health. In fact, possibly, it's quite the opposite. Here's the obligatory disclaimer once again. The author, that's me, Leonie Jaber, and the partners in the Psychonauts, we aren't endorsing the therapeutic or recreational use of psychedelics. This podcast is founded on the principle of harm reduction. Word is spreading about the potential benefits of psychedelics, but because they're illegal, it's driven them underground, where it's hard to monitor and safely regulate their use. This podcast aims to open up that conversation as well as put some evidence-based ideas out there about the risks associated with the unsupported therapeutic or recreational use of such substances. The kind of psychedelic experiences discussed in this series should only be done under the supervision of a skilled professional and in a safe environment. And people with a family history of psychosis or schizophrenia should steer well clear. Please speak with an informed family doctor or psychiatrist to find out more. Oh, and don't go out foraging for wild mushrooms. No matter how good you think you are at mushroom identification, it's hard to tell the lethal ones from the safe ones. As the old saying goes, all fungi are edible, but some only once. <laughs>